0: monica kirkpatrick johnson didn't know me from adam when i stumbled onto her online uh, when i looked around for somebody who was studying adolescence I kind of wanted to do a series about kids and adolescence and old age. And I think people study kids a lot. They're very interested in early childhood development. And as people get older, especially in this country, as the people with the money and the influence get older, people are more and more interested in studying and spending money to study what it is to get old and how you can live longer and have a happier uh, life as an older person. And adolescents, I think, get a lot of crap from the world. This is the difficult transition between being a dependent child and hopefully at one point you become a self-sufficient adult. And I think it looks different all over the world and in America. I think we have a very... I don't know, hot and cold relationship with adolescents. We look to young people, we idolize their youth and sex appeal and their high level of energy and uh, boomers who reach retirement age kind of want to go back and they remember that energy and they want to relive it again. But then at the same time, we're afraid and we're frustrated with these adolescents. Oh, they're living with their parents longer. They can't seem to figure out what they want to do. Being an adolescent and being outside adolescent. Adolescence and looking in, I think, can be frustrating for everybody. And uh, me and Monica, oh God, she's, I should be punished for that. Monica and I have a good philosophical conversation about what's happening in adolescence. What does the data say? What has she learned through research? And uh, what do we think about how people should feel about adolescence? Are we beating up on them too much? Or should we beat up on them more? Obviously, the answer is we shouldn't beat up on adolescence. Let's listen.
1: I am Monica Kirkpatrick-Johnson, and I'm a sociologist at Washington State University, and I study adolescence and the transition to adulthood, uh, primarily in the United States, and how it has changed across uh, decades and generations
0: when you so decades and generations do you have good data are we talking about stuff back into the 1900s the 1800s how far back do you do you kind of look at when you're thinking about that transition
1: most of my own work where I am actually analyzing data looks back to about the 1970s okay um, but we do have data on a lot of relevant behaviors that date back much earlier. Uh, and a lot of the trends we see in, um, especially the, the end of adolescence, movement mm-hmm. into adulthood, we have pretty good data um, from 1900. Um, and some of the trends that we see, it, it's helpful to look back earlier than, you know, mid last century.
0: Is it because, do you have good, better data about the transition from adolescence to adulthood because that is a clear life stage? Somebody gets married, somebody has children, somebody gets a job?
1: At least in terms of those, you know behaviors and demographic roles okay that's true right so we we often have marked the end of adolescence and beginning of adulthood through things like getting married having a job being out of school and those are things that we have official statistics on going much further back. The more identity questions and uh, maybe parent-child relationship questions that we might have, those are gonna rely more on survey data and those rapidly expanded in the first part of last century. And we have a lot more information, you know, beginning in the 60s and 70s.
0: Could you tell me kind of just big picture, you are a sociologist working in mm-hmm. sociology, how does that Venn circle diagram affect? Because obviously I could see how uh, obviously history, science, biology, human medicine, all uh, all psychology, philosophy, all those things could play into this transitional space. Um, where as you as a sociologist, how what's kind of the lens you look at it from?
1: I look at it through an interdisciplinary lens, although okay. my own knowledge, of course, is is higher in the social sciences than it is in the biological sciences. Right. Um, yeah, so the, the perspective I, I look through is called the life course perspective. And it, um, its primary emphasis is to think about how um, lives are lived through time and space. Um, and it really highlights how, for example, the process of growing up or growing old looks different at different times in history. And so there are biological realities to you know maturation and aging, right. but they are strongly conditioned by um, other aspects of society, our relationships, our institutions, our technology, and so on. So I work collaboratively with scientists from a lot of different fields and, um, and uh, humanities, mm-hmm. uh, scholars as well, um, And it's important to have some of those um, perspectives, um, including very early history on on families and um, child rearing, uh, as well as biological changes in the the body and what we're learning now about brain development. So that's all context for me, but my own focus is on how are we as a society setting up institutions like schools And work and how is the institution of family doing things differently you know in the 70s 80s 90s compared to now
0: do you find yourself really trying to stand back from what you your hypotheses and then the the survey data you go out and gather and look at are you trying sort of that older fashioned anthropologist perspective i am just going to describe what i am seeing and there are no prescriptions that come out of that, or do you feel like some of the research you do, you do wish at some point, either now or in the future, somebody clicks a, you know, a public policy train to some of this data and changes how those schools do things or changes how society manages this transition?
1: A little towards the latter. Okay. I think <laughs> uh, We sociologists are are very good at at you know, couching everything we do as well, you know. <laughs> We don't know everything yet. Okay, um, eco- very nu- nuanced. Okay, <laughs> economists are much better at just prescribing, um, right. <laughs> and so it's in our nature as a field to be a little bit more cautious. But I, but I do study things that have very direct policy recommendations, and uh, things like um, you know, over the years, I've looked at things like whether adolescents should be employed while they're yeah. in school, and you know, um, the Connections between um, educational attainment and pay, and you know whether or not we should be financially supporting young people up to different ages. Those are all very policy relevant, yeah. and um, I think one of my jobs is to point out how things are changing in the big picture and how how processes are interrelated. So it's not just that, you know, kids these days are different. (laughs) Kids these days are different because we parents are different, we educational leaders are different, our institutions are different, our economy is different. And so what is needed from them and what is demanded from them and what they've been given is different. (laughs) So those interrelations, it's not just, You know, it's not just parents are doing things differently. Therefore, kids are different. Um, But parents are parenting in a different economy than their own parents were.
0: (laughs) Does that mean as as you dig into these things, I mean, you did mention maybe maybe you appreciate nuance more than some other people do. And so you're not ready to sort of say, we should absolutely do this many times. So you're more, we don't know this, we don't know that. The more you dig into the transition. I feel like anytime you get close to a border like this, the closer you get to a border, whether it's a geographic border or an age border, it starts to like get wider and wider. And then it gets more gray where the thing changes from adolescence to adult. Do you feel like the more you've studied this, the more fuzzy that line between the two has become? Or have you kind of concretized it in some way where you're more clear about where that transition happens.
1: I think I've always appreciated that it is multifaceted and it varies. Okay. I mean, if you think about like a 21 year old, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a 21 year old could be parenting, working full time, um, you know, or a 21 year old could be in college, um, supporting themselves yeah. in college, completely dependent on their parents <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. though, and, and what they do, how much they drink, what, you know, what their aspirations are, all sorts of things are then tied to that life. And so um, I would say that, um, you know, as my work investigates different things over time, I certainly zero in on different things, but I feel like um, my background and training have always lent a a perspective to seeing this as both a psychological and developmental process, as well as a institutions and social roles perspective. Uh Um, And so, and then of course, you know, bringing in the life course perspective that focuses on history, it's sort of always been this jumble of people think, You know, becoming an adult is a thing that happens at a certain point, but sure, (laughs) but we're all on different trajectories and there's patterns to that, but there's a lot of variation. Um, and some things are happening faster than others, like we get all sorts of rights at 18, but other things are not quite there yet. (laughs) Um, and, uh, the physical changes that our bodies are going through are not necessarily aligned with the arrangements that we have around us with parents and schools um, and the law. So that that sort of complexity has always fascinated me.
0: Well, that would be maybe that would be a good starting point because I did want to ask kind of a primary question, and then I feel like there's so many things about from the past into today I'd like to explore. But number one, I feel like there is an assertion by some people. Um, in academia, maybe less in academia today, but once upon a time, there was no such thing as an adolescent. Once upon a time, people matured, so there was sexual maturity, and then these people became adults. Once you were ready to be married and have children, once you were ready to go and join the community as an adult, then that was it. You're a kid and then you're an adult. And this extended adolescence is this weird thing that the modern world has created. People must have said that to you. And then what is your response <laughs> if they say, this is a made up thing. This this extended period of adolescence, it's not a real thing. It, yeah, it's not a real thing. What do you say? To that?
1: So what I would say is that there's a difference between thinking about what is real and what is a social construction. Um, Sometimes we blur what's real with what is, what has to be, what is biologically determined or something like that. Um, But just because it's not all biological doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So um, the, the perspective that this is new is both True and not true. <laughs> okay, good. So, uh, and partly it always depends on what part of history we compare to. Um, we can get very different ideas about what life was like in the good old days or in yeah. the past when we pick our reference point. So um, it, I think my perspective is that there's always been a transition period from dependence to independence. And. Um, uh, and so there's always been some kind of transition to adulthood. Um, now, there is a trend over time in carving up the lifespan into more and more stages. Okay. So there were definitely periods of time and societies that marked a more clear, you're a child and then you're not a child, <laughs> you're yes. an adult. Yes. Um, and so there definitely is is that um and interestingly enough there's always been variation about when that is you know it's not like oh puberty therefore this transition has happened certainly in some societies that has been the case but but not so much recently and you know not in all societies um more often the case was okay well you've hit that marker but you've also married or you have you know um taken on your own support. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so sometimes that meant dad dies, you get the land and then you can marry, yeah. right? Or it can take a bunch of different forms. Now, interestingly enough, we we had a lot of variation in, in timing of those things. Um, there's some variation in puberty, of course, but there's a lot of variation in when people get married and when they become economically so self-sufficient. But as we moved into the period of, of Um, the 1950s and 60s Mm -hmm. uh, in the US, and this happened in a lot of the Western world, we actually saw um, a homogenization of patterns where more and more people were following the same timing of these transitions and doing so in a very condensed fashion. So if you think about sort of right after World War II, people left school, got married, took a job or became a housewife and had kids. All at very sort of similar younger ages and all very rapidly. Like those roles came in in a succession and they came in in an order. (laughs) Right. Um, Which (laughs) it was, if you did that
0: out of order, there were very clear parts of those steps that are unacceptable to do out of order.
1: Exactly. And of course, that has changed. But interestingly enough, some of the things like, you know, marriage age, Mm -hmm. they were higher before that period right? And they went down in the World War II period, and, and then they went back up again. Um, so some of the things we think are new, like marrying later, actually map on to earlier parts of the last century. Um, some of those patterns have sort of returned to the early years and and kept going. Um, and And so here's what I would say about you know, the sort of the creation of adolescence. Yes. Um, I do think we socially recognized adolescence um, in the last hundred years. And before that, there was, there was a transition uh, that was recognized, but less so- social awareness and um, thinking about young people in terms of adolescence. So, and it was largely created um, by increasing dependence um, we put in labor laws, mm-hmm. um, removing uh, children and teenagers you know at least up through a certain age from the labor force. Um, and we mandated schooling, that you had to stay in school for a certain amount of time. So we did things like that that created um, a period of extended dependency on families that we didn't have before. And then a bunch of other things came into it, including you know consumerism and marketing to that age group and culture that sort of forms around that. But when you take young people out of the workplace where it was intergenerational yeah. and you put them all in school together for longer, <laughs> you create a different thinking about what a 13, 15 year old is. Um, and so that I think emerged, um, you know, at a point in history when we were making those policy shifts. Uh, a psychologist actually coined the term or at least made it popular in, in um, the early 1900s, 190 something. Um, Hall uh, was his name. He published a, a book called Adolescence and it be, kind of took off. Mm-hmm. A lot of social science work didn't start until mid-century, but that idea in the popular um, mind um, was, you know, a little over 100 years ago. Now, what's newer is how long it lasts. (laughs) So, you know, um, in the 1960s, we had for the first time a majority of young people actually graduating high school. So if you go pre-World War II, The most common experience was actually not to finish high school. And then, you know, in the in the 60s, we have a majority of young people um, graduating high school for the first time. And, you know, now we have a majority of young people going to post-secondary education, not graduating necessarily, but at least going. So um, we have extended the period um, that was originally created through some of those labor and schooling laws. Um, to be even later now um, through some economic and educational uh, trends that are interrelated.
0: Can I ask, do you think um, you, I did want to ask, you know, is adolescence sort of buffeted by these larger social forces? And then you mentioned the things that stick out for me, which is the fact when child labor labor was made illegal and then they had mandatory schooling to get these kids somewhere because if they're not going to go to work, they have to do something. So they all go to school. That feels like an outside force pushing on people and then making the people kind of shift around their ideas about their children growing into adults in when you look at stuff from the 1950s 1960s 1970s on does it still feel like larger social forces pushing at adole- the period of adolescence around or does it feel like people themselves are calling for some either emotional need these kids have or we don't think they're ready for this on an on a, there's a scientific reason we don't think they're ready for this so we don't want to push them on here or we want to push them here harder or does it i don't know you know does that make any sense does it mm-hmm. seem like we're intentioned pointing to do these things or adolescence just gets pushed around ha- wherever we need these kids to go that's a force them
1: <laughs> um that's a good question i think I think social forces are at work, no matter what, whether or not they're intentional is a really interesting question. Um, We, some of our policy pushes are because we, we um, understand young people differently than we did before. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're, we're understanding, you know, when young people can make what kinds of decisions and with what kind of forecasting and you know so we're learning a little bit more about maturation and um and cognitive development um we are also though um probably doing things less intentionally because of other social forces um so Let's think about um, the way that families view their kids, because you mentioned that we we think they're not ready. Right. Right. Um, that, you know, is really interesting because we have shrunk family size dramatically. <laughs> we used to have a lot larger families. And as we had fewer and fewer kids, we um, began to think of children very differently. Right. And that went hand in hand with restricting their labor. Um, um, children became costly rather than economic assets if they weren't right. working on the farm or in factories. Or yeah. So now they cost a lot and they cost even more because we've decided that we want to invest in a small number um, heavily rather than you know, spread our resources over a larger number of children. Right. And as we did that, we became very invested in our children's success. Um, and we have parented differently. Some, some uh, scholars call it concerted cultivation or <laughs> intensive parenting. We are um, very vigilant in watching what they need and how they're doing, and uh, when we see a little inkling that they might be good at something or might be interested in something, we try to develop that, yeah. especially if we have resources to do so. That's you know very um, economically patterned, of course, um, and our understanding of um, you know what they need from us to be successful adults has has shifted along that. At the same time, the economy has made the world that we're preparing our young people for unpredictable and high stakes. So we've had, and you're probably aware of this, in the United States, we've had um, a period of incredibly um, increasing inequality. Um, And so you know, there's always some level of a qua- a qua- inequality in a country, right? right? We don't all make exactly the same amount. And none of us in America would probably argue that we should make exactly the same amount, right? But how much inequality varies over time? Um, and it's a lot more unequal now. Um, and um, we've also tied earnings to education much more closely than we ever had. And again, I think we'd all sort of understand and accept that if you go to college, you're gonna make more on average than if you finish high school. Um, and if you drop out of high school, you'll make even less. But the gap between those levels has widened substantially since the 1970s with um, uh, various kinds of you know, trends in what kinds of jobs are needed, how they're rewarded. Um, and other kinds of things like that. The cost of education, the rewards from education. So we are now preparing our kids for a highly unequal world where we want them to be doing okay. And education is the clearest predictor of, of being financially secure. So we now are, are sort of thinking about what do our kids need um, from a lens that includes you know all of this that i've just talked about we have fewer kids we're more invested but we see this world that we're preparing them for as um, high stakes and uncertain and we want to help ensure their success right (laughs) so um that has changed our understanding of what they need and how capable they are
0: that so everything you said makes perfect sense and this undercurrent as you talked about this i wondered if again i you sort of touched on it maybe nobody really knows parents want to do the right thing and so i think a lot of times we for instance that intensive parenting you're talking about you are heavily invested in a thing so you put a lot of effort into it just putting effort into something without the wisdom and the information and the resources to make that kind of parenting style work out in the end. I, I wonder if the parents, uh, the pejorative term helicopter parents, parents who sort of monitor the kids all the time, because just like you said, high stakes world out there and they fewer kids and they really want these kids to see it's important to their family unit. It's important to them. It's important to the kids. Uh, do they know what the, do do they know what they're doing? So as you look at this stuff, do you think, oh yeah, this is the right thing.
1: Uh, I yes and no. <laughs>
0: okay. okay. Yes and so, no. I, I want to hear both. That's awesome. I want to hear yeah, both sides. Yeah. I
1: think that that we're we're increasingly aware of the, um, the package deal, so that you know there is increasing conversation about what kids are missing when they don't have free play yeah. and free time. We're increasingly aware that, um, you know young people um, need to practice coping and need to practice solving problems in a way that you know it may just be happening later but at the same time there's worry there's definitely a cultural debate about whether or not kids have have not developed enough independence to navigate the things that they'll have to do as adulthood so so I don't know the answer to that. You know, every every generation creates a package, um, and when you look at the whole package, it's hard to say if it's better than, than or worse than before,
0: right.
1: but um, there's definitely conversation about that trade-off. The good thing is is that the, the helicopter parenting image um, that we hear in the media is exaggerated from reality. That doesn't mean that we don't have very invested parents on the one end, but you tell uh, me the in characterization the, in the, is in, is a tell little. Tell me
0: about the surveying and the data. I am curious about that. What as you've kind of looked at, really looked at it, said it's not really fair. In what ways is it not fair? And what way are people overdoing this uh, this uh, caricature?
1: Um. I would say in terms of how many, well, there's a lot of different things you could look at, but sure. we ask adolescents and we ask parents in a lot of, you know, regional and national studies about sort of, you know, how much do your parents know about your whereabouts? How much do you know about your child's whereabouts? How much does your parent control what you consume, you know, through TV and and um, online? Lots of, you know, how much is the parent involved in mm-hmm these things. Um, You know, even in college, we ask, you know, does your parent help you pick classes and, (laughs) you know, all those things. And, and really, when you look at a lot of those indicators, there, there aren't very many parents who are actually, you know, sort of um, making sure their kids in college, wake up, go to class, read their papers, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and sometimes I've seen cartoons about, you know, about that kind of thing. So, Um, let me circle back to one thing before I forget though. Oh, sure. Um, I think that, um, where it is clear that parents are adapting to reality and probably Mm -hmm. productively so is that they are financially supporting their young adult children longer than maybe yours or my parents did or, or their parents did. Um, and, um, if anything, I'm worried about families who can't do that. Um, so we have this yeah. sort of policy notion um, where, you know, suddenly you should be independent. Now, parents recognize that that's maybe not so possible. Sure. The cost of education has skyrocketed, and um, even for those who aren't going, you know, past high school, the pay. Um, for jobs, if you get a job with only a high school degree, um, has eroded with inflation. It's worse now than it was for, you know, young people maybe graduating um, before the 70s. And and it's just gotten increasingly worse. So the economic reality of people who are 18, (laughs) um, or in the, you know, in the next set of years after that is that it's very difficult to be self-sufficient. And so some notion, you know, from the past that we can kind of be done at 18, um, supporting, uh, young adults, I think is, is out of line with the actual economy. Um, and I think, you know, things like the great recession helped that become more widely understood. Um, but it's been a it's been a gradual thing, not a recession driven thing. Um, But there were, you know, stories in the paper about kids moving back in with their parents or, you know, working two jobs and so on that kind of brought this to more cultural attention. But it's been a gradual process where, you know, your 18, 20, 22 year old child um, may need help with um, living expenses or educational expenses. And that for those families who can help, it's actually going to help. Um, and they will be able to get a better foothold in the labor market long term. Um, we don't have any other sort of um, social mechanism for so- supporting young adults. Um, just as a contrast, some of those um, social democratic nations uh, we'll have things like housing allowances for young adults Mm -hmm. um, because rent is expensive. And so there's more of a housing allowance if you're, you know, uh, younger or tuition is subsidized more heavily by the state, or um, there are child allowances if you're a young parent. Um, So we in the U S are very um, uh, skimpy with financial support of children and young adults as a collective, we put that on families, (laughs) but families are responding. Families are very likely to um, give pretty hefty financial transfers to um, their 18 to mid twenties, young adult children. And, And I think that is something that is needed and totally reflects the reality that this generation is growing up in.
0: So, I don't this might wander too far afield, but you're mentioning the so the one positive thing is parents that do have the means and the ability um, to to support their children through a, a longer period of dependency and lack of self-sufficiency. they can do it. I, there's a philosopher, I can't remember his name, but he I think he was just being partly obnoxious, but maybe not. His argument was it is immoral to give your children your own personal progeny unfair advantage. If you, the money you could put toward, you know, the twice a week horse lessons, you ought to take that money and give it to a family somewhere else that can't get their kids books or they can't keep the heat on. That is the moral thing to do. So he's a moral philosopher. He's trying to get people Mm -hmm. to think about how much do you privilege your children over other people. This issue in America, it's exactly what you said. I think there is not a communal responsibility for these adolescents. Little kids, people have a lot of sympathy for little kids. But these adolescents like, well, that's the responsibility of their families. So I think here we way go toward the individual responsibility over the collectivism. And I wonder if anything about the date does the does the data reflect that? And is, I don't know, is there a path forward when people do have the opinion that, well, if you can give your kids the very best, that's what you do. You take all your money and you pour it into your one or two children and other people, those families are gonna have to figure it out on their own.
1: hmm well, yeah, we are, we are like that, okay. <laughs> especially. Especially when you look at um, other countries. Now we're not the only country that's like that, but, sure. but we stand out in terms of our economic development that we are like that. And to say um, that people
0: shouldn't care—obvious, it is primal, biological to care for your children and your family. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to tell people, no, no, you need to care for more people, and you shouldn't care so much for your—that just seems like mm-hmm. a losing proposition. But I don't know. Yeah,
1: and we, you know, there are many examples of society that that sort of tax more in other in order to pool and then provide and we certainly do to some degree we have very high support for that notion of public schools right Um, although even there we kind of we tie it to local property property taxes and so as a wealthy community not a wealthy family but as a wealthy community we can provide more than that other community over there my community you know that community so um but we do we do sort of at one level, support the idea that we should tax and pay for roads and military and public school. Um, so, but what many other societies do then is also then put money towards other things that that, um, for example, um, you mentioned you know younger children, universal preschool or yeah. uh, daycare, um, and. We certainly, I would say, especially, um, gosh, especially in the last couple of decades, we have increasingly recognized that we need to care more collectively about children. And in fact, even right now, policy debates on family, you know, child tax credits and um, child care it's getting more traction than it would have a couple of decades ago um, for that reason. I think we're understanding. Um, there was a Nobel Prize economist who who um, did some calculations showing that investments in childhood um, looking later at, you know, earnings and welfare dependency and things like that, it really pays off. And so there's a, a, a both a, a moral argument, but also increasingly like, Oh, should we pay the costs now or should we pay the costs later? Um, um, of, you know, of making sure that, um, that this, you know, that we invest collectively in children, although even there, we are fairly minimalist, but especially, you know, um, that hasn't extended quite as much to adolescence yet, and certainly not young adults. We, um, you know, the amount of uh, the cost of higher education, for example, in public institutions um, that we pay for publicly has dramatically dropped so that the cost is more on tuition, which is the young person or their parents. right? Um, and so in some ways during young adult adulthood, we are disinvesting um, over time and saying that that's increasingly um, on families. There are a few places where we have tinkered. Um, there's increasing recognition that in the foster care system, for example, you can't just say, okay, 18 year old, you're on your own. Um, and we've extended that age up, or we've provided some transitional Programs, um, you know the the healthcare law, um, the the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. They extended the age of um, when you can be on a family's insurance policy upward. um, Required, you know, uh, companies to cover um, young adult children. Um, So there's there's some sort of like collective sense that. Oh, you know, it has changed. 18 in 2022 is not the same thing as 18 was in, you know, 1950. But, you know, it's pretty minimal. And in, and in other ways, we're, um, I guess this isn't a financial example, but in, in other ways, we are going the other direction. We're increasingly prosecuting um, teenagers as adults um we've just you know we've gotten more punitive and we've thought of of those young people as um less people in the making still developing and more as you know threats permanent threats um that we need to uh process through the adult court system instead of the juvenile system
0: so i think that's probably the the maybe a really dark side and then there's a even the less dark side again, is that people have all kinds of sympathy for children. But as people, there's this, I don't know, there there is, I'm curious in America, I don't think we have our head wrapped around who an adolescent is. And I don't think adolescents get enough of the benefit of the doubt. As you said, way at the beginning of this conversation, I, I do see the cognitive stuff where they're looking at things and saying, look, we can prove that these people, because of their age and the maturation of their brain into their 20s, are making poor decisions in certain arenas at certain times. You got to give some benefit for that. And that slowly trickles out. But to tell the average American, look, this kid's brain isn't developed when he's 25 years old, (laughs) that just infuriates the average person. I don't think it should. So is there anything about looking at in your research of adolescence that ever tends to or could soften people's attitude and make them think a little more collectively and communally that we're responsible for these people who are strong enough to fight and they're old enough to drink and they're old enough to go get their jobs and have families, but they're struggling because of this package that they were born into. Hmm. That may be too big.
1: (laughs) I do. I do think that we have, have come, uh, come along in understanding how much the economy matters um, for their age group. Not just, you know, we've always thought, you know, it's the economy, stupid, but it, but understanding that, you know, that that end of adolescence is strongly shaped by adolescence, by the economy. I think we have come in some ways along on that, but what I don't see um, is any change in um, thinking that, adolescents are largely to blame for their own mistakes or that their parents are to blame for their mistakes um we're a pretty punitive society and yes. and you know there's there's some interesting theoretical work um focusing on the US in our particular combination of of uh independence um and that instead of sort of regulating each other's behavior through relationships and through sort of a sense of, of community, we regulate through high stakes consequences. Um, You know, we imprison a lot of people, but even on other kinds of behaviors, we have sort of um, strict rules for what you can and can't do in adolescence. And there's punishments that, that go with that. Um, So, you know, I feel like it's so uneven in how we think about adolescence. We're increasingly aware that they're, they're navigating a world where, um, you know, there's dangers. Right. Um, and um, we're concerned about what kinds of um media and social media have, you know, positive and negative effects. And we're increasingly aware that the, the landscape of substance use is changing. And, you know, so we're, we're increasingly aware of those kinds of things and that it's hard to grow up, but we, we haven't shifted away from the personal blame no. tradition that we have as Americans. And um, I don't necessarily see anything that is changing that. Oh, I'm getting kind of philosophical, a little bit beyond <laughs> what I know.
0: <laughs> I know, but I love this is what I love because I did want to ask you about going back into the mid-20th century, as maybe the data that you were able to kind of really look at. Has this attitude always been as strong that whatever it is? I mean, it gets played out. There's this there's a song by my chemical romance. I always think it's funny. It's called Teenagers, and the riff is teenagers scare the living S out of me. And it's all about how teenagers <laughs> are dangerous, but it's written by young 20-somethings who are sort of poking fun but they're saying teenagers are wild and crazy and like you can see it in certain places this kind of leads to a, another question that we probably can't get into but sometimes if there are gender imbalances that happen in a country and there's too many young men who are born and they don't have jobs and they don't have people to marry and they can't start families the whole society starts wigging out and freaking out about that for good reason it's a lot of uh, sort of energy that's planted in that time uh So I don't know all all that to say this, the, that fear of teenagers, has this been prevalent? This punitive attitude? Does it feel like people have always had, if there's asking these questions, do the teenagers feel that they're being judged? And do the adults, are the adults kind of preachy and, uh, and, and disciplinary about, well, this is your responsibility. Now you you're of age now. So these teenagers need to get up, go out and do it. And if they screw up, it's on them.
1: So I think we've we have long held that this is a that this is a period of the life course that we have to be suspicious of, right? (laughs) Okay. I think that both culturally we have defined adolescence as a period of storm and stress. Yeah. um, To use a quote, um, and that the adolescent's job is to break free, um, develop themselves obviously is the positive way of doing that, but that rule breaking is, you know, testing the limits, finding, finding out, learning consequences. Um, We've, we've defined it that way as a a social period. Um, But also like so much of our scholarship on this age has, has been driven by problem behavior. So, you know, from the beginning we were concerned Um, we collectively, uh, before I was even born, were concerned with delinquency, right? And we were concerned with teenage pregnancy and we were concerned with, um, you know, idleness. And, and so, and we've continued that with substance use and and a range of other things. So the vast bulk of our work has been on the problems that that we want to fix, right? We want, we don't want adolescents to be engaging in these kinds of things. And There's so- There's something
0: wrong with teenagers and they need to be fixed. That's where the is Yes. I mean, went. we need okay. to
1: support them in the right way <laughs> right, or control okay. them in the right way. And so I think both that comes from the idea that goes beyond the field in, think, in how we think about adolescence, but then, you know, the field should own up itself to the idea that we tend to, to really be driven by um, these negative things that we study. And and there is a, a positive youth development, you know, school yeah. that is, is focusing okay. on other things. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, we continue to kind of see this as a as a period of of um you know higher rule breaking um and um you know, something that we should be. We've always looked back and thought, oh, those teenagers, right? They're, right. <laughs> they're getting into trouble if they don't have you know enough supervision.
0: Is there what positive as you've studied adolescence? Maybe my last question is, why did you start studying adolescence? And then I think I think the period, you know, you mentioned the tough part of this is that they're rule breaking. So they need to push hard against all these other people to go find another way. And overall, the hope is that that will lead our society in new, better, innovative directions if we let you be crazy. There's, a, there's, some, <laughs> there's some crazy hormonal, high-intensity, identity-seeking period that happens around here, and we can see all the bad effects. Oh, nobody likes the bad effects, but then there are the good effects. How, why did you start studying adolescence, and what is your positive take about this period? something you love about the fact these people sitting in this zone of time and space.
1: So yeah, let me actually reverse the order. We'll I think what's so amazing is that yes, indeed, because of the identity seeking and the, and the optimism and the, you know, idealization and the energy. Um, but I would also add the reduced responsibilities like yeah. they're not parenting, so they don't have to keep their job. <laughs> you know, yeah. th- because of all that, they can push, right? And I wouldn't say it's always well-received in the moment, but <laughs> as we look back on history, we think of who pushed the civil rights movement. That wasn't a bunch of, you know, 50-year-old people. Um, it was in in part older people, but it, you know, a lot of our, you know, uh, Vietnam War pr- protests and our uh, push for a lot of other changes, Social movements are driven by young people. And so we can look back and I'm, sh- I'm sure, you know, many people during those period of times were a little, you know, afraid of the consequences, too. Right. But with time, we say, well, they change things or they developed new technology or they pushed the rules on, you know, where the boundaries between work and family are and what life is for. And, you know, we see we see young people now questioning. Some of the practices that my generation lived with. Yeah. So I I think that is exciting. I think that you know each each group grows up in a new set of circumstances and questions, um, and you know we don't always get it right, but we um, we have the chance to change things um, with that, and, and young people do. They have the, the room and the energy to do that, and I think it's really exciting. I think the the reason that I was very attracted to studying this, well, there was a an interest and a practical reality to my <laughs> <Okay>. own <laughs> development. My interest, I think, came from thinking about this as a movement from a fairly uniform time, when you're in your late teens, where most, but not all, most of us are in school. Most of us are living with parents, you know, and we're launching and our futures are dramatically different. And I was very interested in who was able to build a successful life based on things like gender and, um, based on things like, um, the economic resources or educational attainment of parents, and so I'm kind of a, a you know inequality-driven person. I'm 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 aware of it. I'm interested in it, and I yeah. want to know both how inequality propels us onto different paths as we go from high school into the future, but also how then those paths may actually reinforce inequality. And so. I've long been interested in this, especially the end of adolescence, as this branching point in the life course. Um, Now, clearly, lots of things have led up to a point, you know, where as an adolescent, you have, you know, a better education than others, or more self-control than others, or more ambition than others. Like, it's not like we're all blank slates at 17, but, (laughs) um, but I have been really interested in the, okay, now you know, you need to go build your future. What is that going to look like? So I've, I've studied a lot of things about like aspirations and values and, you know, those things that that may shape the paths in conjunction with resources to where young people are going. Now, the practical side of it is that when I was a graduate student, there was a, a research study in my graduate program um, that was... Um, on a group of young people who originally had been ninth graders Mm -hmm. and they were uh, now in their early 20s. And I was uh, a research assistant on this project. And the original purpose of the study was to examine the consequences of teenage employment. Um, At the time it was started, that was a highly contested um, behavior. Should they be doing it or should they not be doing it? And and but as they, you know, were themselves growing up and the study was continuing to follow them, it opened up all sorts of questions about um, whether that experience was one that shaped what kind of path they took through higher education or not, um, early work experience and so on. Um, as well, the, the you know, the study had collected all sorts of information on parents and other adolescent experiences like um school and homework and uh, tv time at the time (laughs) it was it was uh it was in the early 90s uh late 80s early 90s so um so media use and and other kinds of things so um in addition to my own interest um working on that study shaped me greatly in thinking about the different paths young people take forward and how that might be shaped by things like um, opportunities to work, um, you know, past educational performance, um, uh, parenting behavior, and and things like that. So um, it was probably a mutual reinforcing process where um, being involved in, in that project, you know, and learning from from scholars who were um, engaged in questions about what it meant to be you know late teens and 20s during you know that period in the 90s um probably helped crystallize my interest in it
0: ultimately looking at having looked at it for many years and, and looked and had access to that hey or even early 90s almost like they're starting up are they still going is it going to be like a longitude are they going to go stretch it out as far as they can or is <laughs> they, that thing Done.
1: yeah no actually there was a, a pretty big gap um uh in time it was it was followed for for many many years okay. um and then there was a bit of a gap in time and then there was actually um about two years ago there was a data collection both on that original cohort of, mm-hmm. of people who are, who are now in their late forties, um, and their children. Um, there were several, actually several years of, of, data collection on their children, as long as their children had reached, um, 11. Mm-hmm. Um, so anywhere from 11 up through the, their, you know, twenties. Um, so yes, it, it has lasted.
0: <laughs> Does, having, having looked at the different, so maybe all these kids are parked on the same launch pad at this high school as seniors. And if they graduate or don't graduate, take jobs, don't take jobs, have this kind of money at home, have this kind of home life. Does it bum you out when you dig into those stories? Or do you sort of have like a, I don't know, reinvigoration of that people in bad circumstances? Everybody loves the hard luck story where somebody makes something of themselves, but the reality is for one of those shining lights that goes up like a firework, there's all these other people who never launch and that their lives are difficult because they had difficult circumstances beginning. When you read, when you sort of sifted through all that, did you, were you able to gather enough of a sense that there were people who had rough starts who did well and people who had great starts and did very poorly, or did you, well, you, were you, able to sort those in, were they all individual stories or are you able to sort them into kind of like groups or does it all feel like very individual when you're thinking about adolescence now?
1: Um, so the, the depressing version of that is okay. that the largest pattern is, is reproduction okay. uh, of your circumstances. Um, we, we love that rags to riches and the, you know, the, um, the the kid that makes good despite circumstances it, it happens of course as does the other you can fall from grace um, but um, one of the things that I've seen is that that's that the the dominant story is that you know resources of parents dramatically shape what happens um, for a young person's life. Um, worse it seems to be tightening um in other words things like um parents income has a stronger predictive relationship on going to college than it used to um so um there are individual patterns and and sometimes teasing out what else besides you know parent social position might be involved is very interesting and there's a lot of 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 People studying, you know, what they'll call resilience. So it may be economic problems that, that you could be resilient from. It could be, you know, t- child trauma or you know, a number of different things. And there are um there are patterns to who is resilient. Um, but um the bulk of the pattern is that um, you know, things like parents' education are so dramatic in what they provide young people both while they're children and adolescents, but then how that all shapes what happens later that um, I think we really need to be concerned with growing inequality
0: And the I, yeah the thing that most bothers me again about your your idea about you know everybody, that launching point where they either launch to a thriving, flourishing, fruitful life where they kind of find their purpose and find their places, just as you said that having that extra time, having a little extra money, having parents who've been through the college already, even if they don't have any money, you don't have wealthy parents, but they've been to college. That means you know everything about that. And they can either steer you toward or not steer you that way in college. Just not enough mentors, not enough effect. And then these are all things outside of a child's control. To expect an eight-year-old to go employ the skills that a 35-year-old would do, which is, I'm going to go find mentors. I'm going to read all these books. Those are the stories we love to hear. This mm-hmm. kid came from mm-hmm. nothing, and they didn't have anybody to guide them. And this young man or young woman went out and found it, and, they had the, and they, they're going to come tell everyone their story about grit and resilience and about how you can do this and be a self-made woman and a self-made man but that's hard to ask a teenager to do. So it always bums me out. I feel like there's all these little spirits and little souls that are all sitting there that could blossom into particular flowers that we all need, but because they don't have the time money or the education at that particular point. um, And we could choose to,
1: we could choose to help parents, um, you know, in raising children. Right. Or we could choose to provide things that are available outside of the family. Right. We could, Do things through schools or through community organizations or through religious organizations, right? So, um, yes, to to think that an individual can navigate this kind of structural inequality is unrealistic. Um, But there's a lot that we could do to make parents able to parent (laughs) more successfully. Um, And, you know, and I'm just struck by how um, compounding education is because there's so much of our lives that is is tied to our level of education. It's, it's not just how much we earn, but what kind of work we do and how, how much autonomy we have and how, what kinds of, you know, decision-making we make on the job. It, it shapes how many children we have. It shapes when, and uh, when we get married, if we get married and how long we stay married. <laughs> it, um, it, you know, shapes all sorts of, of uh, leisure activities that then our, our children would Involved in as well, like whether yeah. or not you're reading and, and and doing other kinds of things. So, I it's um it's striking to me um that that we have some avenues to to give adolescents more resources for you know beginning on on productive paths, and um, in the current environment, uh, too many parents are um, handicapped from doing you know, what we expect families to do. But then even to expect families to do this um, is I think counterproductive.
0: What are you working on now? What kind of research or what kind of classes are you most excitedly teaching? So what are you working on and what are you teaching? What are you into right now?
1: I have just finished a, a term as department chair, and okay. I, so I am out of the classroom this semester, um, but I am working on um, an analysis of of patterns in financial um, support that families uh, give to their young adult children. And um, the both the predictors of Mm -hmm. who is giving money to their kids um, and um, you know, things like the child's age, the family circumstances, other kinds of, you know, behaviors on the part of, of, of kids and parents, but also then what, what does that do? Um, And there's a mix of things that it can do. It can sort of impede the development of feeling independent Mm -hmm. um, and it can impede, you know, Sort of taking full re- financial responsibility, but it also predicts, you know, staying in school, graduating from college, you know, earning more um, yeah. later, and and s- some of those kinds of things. So I've I've been interested in in that dynamic most recently, and completely differently, <laughs> I have been doing. <laughs> I have teamed up with a colleague who studies social norms, and we have been studying. Um, norms and the rationales people use for understanding norms, um, around health behaviors in the pandemic, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which has nothing to do with adolescence, but it's been incredibly <laughs> fascinating. So this morning I was working on, you know, uh, 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 making some, uh, figures and analyzing some data about how people respond to other people's masking behavior and, um, and other kinds of things, so totally different topic, but um, uh, it it was warranted in the in the last uh, couple of years that social scientists do some of their work on the pandemic too. <laughs> uh,
0: that so that does make me personally happy because this entire pandemic, I've been worried. You know, I've heard some good lengthy podcasts with public health people, and just frustrated with the way countries have handled certain things from right and left. People frustrated, and kind of a hope the academics always just saying. I hope we're gonna learn something from this. So that does make me happier. (laughs) I feel like maybe we've all gone through this pandemic and the people who will spend some time sifting through this to teach us some stuff that came through this as opposed to just sort of the fury that's sort of venting everywhere. (laughs) I hope we do too. (laughs) Um, Do you have a book, if anybody asks you like adolescents, that's so interesting. Do you ever recommend anybody read a particular thing or listen or watch a particular thing? um mm,
1: you know um and easily accessible i have two easily accessible books okay. um uh, in the sense that they're not overly mathematical and you know they they really kind of take a big picture look at things one is called not quite adults okay. um and it is by uh, setterston ray and they take on this idea of extended adolescence and what it what it means um and i love that one and um Then um, Catherine Newman has a book called The Accordion Family, Um, and the uh, imagery of the accordion family is that it sort of expands and contracts as needed, like an accordion. Um, And it's about... um, living with parents and it does a cross national comparison. The first book I recommended is focused on the U S but Catherine Newman's book is on uh, it takes on three or four countries um, to look at how different societies view this idea of being a young adult and being in your parents home. Uh, And it's very interesting.
0: It is bad. I guess maybe it's not, not totally but i maybe i'm i'll make some ridiculous statement and then you can tell me if it's true or not i feel like when it comes to adolescence we don't pay any attention whatsoever to anything anyone else does to as kids move from maturity as as little kids move from into adolescence and into adulthood we are completely focused on our country everything everyone talks about is What happened with the boomers? What happened with the hippies? What happened with the people in the 70s and 80s? And it's all this country. It's not sort of a global look. So I like the fact that that second book kind of tries to look at some families outside this country.
1: Yeah, and it does a really nice job of talking about how, you know, it's not just a different one different thing in those countries, right? It's it's the cost of housing is different. And it's um, things like how we view the family's role in society is different. And, you know, a number of different things like that, um, including um, one of the countries is Japan, which mm-hmm. gives us a non-Western look. Um, we often, when we do com- look around the world, we often look to Europe only. Um, And so, yeah, it's a a really neat one. I'll throw out one more idea. This is one that I have my students read, um, which is more squarely on the younger part of adolescence, not just the transition to adulthood. Um, And it's called Not Under My Roof, um, which refers to American parents' attitudes about sex for their teenagers. But the book is about So much more than that. It's a comparison between U.S. and Dutch society, and it also goes into things like um, drinking and other kinds of rule breaking to really make the case that that the U.S. has a certain, you know, understanding of of adolescence and what it takes (laughs) compared to and what they're capable of and what they should do compared to you know a society that takes a very very different approach um and uh you know she does a nice comparison between um uh she focuses in on uh the most comparable population in in both countries so she Mm -hmm. looks at fairly middle class and christian um uh White Americans, for the most part, so that she can use the Dutch sample in a fairly, f- fairly similar way. But um, it really is this interesting look at what individualism is in the United States um, and how it shapes our understanding of what we're supposed to do um, for adolescents.